0: ray And a welcome to the Beervana Show, broadcast in Portland on X-Ray FM and available anywhere on your favorite podcast service. Hello, Patrick. <laughs> Hello,
1: Jeff. Very well done.
0: Thank you. Thank He's you. trying
1: to take my job.
0: Yeah, we have a, a very special Beeronomics edition today, so I won't step on our, our intro here, but the reason I'm doing the intro is because you're going to be doing most of the talking today. Yeah,
1: so. we switched chairs. Yeah. I've be- I become the expert. And you become the foil. <laughs>
0: <laughs> exactly. I uh, I just get to trail along in your
1: <laughs> in the wake of my yeah my unrelenting genius. Yes.
0: We we have uh, apparently both had a bad nights of bad night of sleep, and so this could be uh, kind of mediocre podcasting. So we'll try to keep on our game, but yeah. just be aware.
1: From what I understand, you're you're more. Used to bad night sleep. I'm not. I'm a good sleeper, but I've had two really bad night sleeps in a row. Uh. So uh, I'm feeling fussy today. But that's okay because my unrelenting genius will will cut through the fog. And
0: there you go. <laughs> right. my, you know, people really care about this, so I'll go. I'll go deeply into it. But yeah, uh, my my sleeping has gotten a lot better. But last night, so we were just to kind of bring in our normal chat. Uh, it we've had a hot snap here in Portland, Oregon. And so last yeah. night we had on the air con and for some reason it kind of petered out uh, at about three thirty and I woke up in that nether world of a sheet was not warm enough, but the blanket on top was <laughs> too, warm. too warm.
1: That's the story of my life in the <laughs> summer.
0: Yeah. So that that woke me up at three thirty and anyway, I couldn't get back to sleep. So that's that was my situation. Yeah.
1: We should mention that we are in your lovely backyard. It's true. We're in six feet apart but together.
0: Yes. Uh, we are I, I like to think of this as Studio 2 B or 2A. <laughs> uh, we've been out of the X-ray studios for a long time, but here we are. yeah, uh, back.
1: So the urban sounds are with us. My neighborhood is replete with dogs. You don't even have so many dogs around here, but you do have some kids jumping into a backyard pool, I can hear. So that's true. That might come through. Yeah, that's <laughs> yeah.
0: true. Well, before we get too far down the road, I should say that you are Patrick Emerson, a professor of economics at or- uh, Oregon State University yep. uh, here in beautiful Beaver State. And uh, yeah, that's who you are.
1: <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> I forgot. That's my point. My cue. Uh, you are Jeff Hallworth. You write lots of books, um, many of them about beer, including Beer Bible, Seekers of the Master Brewers, and The Widmer Way. That's me. That's you.
0: So how are things?
1: <laughs> I know. Nice. See, it's, it's not so easy it's challenging. being in my chair, is it? <laughs> it's, it's challenging. I got no
0: patter. All right, I got to get up the, uh, that uh, host patter.
1: Uh, things are good. I was just down in Eugene uh, trying to help my uh, older son, Simon, friend of the pod, get set up because he's uh, headed down there for college in so a few weeks.
0: was this recon?
1: No. Actually, this was setting him up in his apartment. This oh, is wow. taking possession of an apartment. He's in a weird position where he's essentially a freshman- age, but he did his high school mostly through local community college, so he's got lots of college credits, so he's entering almost as a junior, uh, which means he doesn't have to live in the dorms. I'm not even sure if they're making people live in the dorms this year because it's so weird. Maybe maybe not normally freshmen have to live in the dorms, uh, but he um, was not interested, so we got him a little apartment, uh, and uh, the my coup was to find an apartment that <laughs> allowed it to rent month to month because God knows what's happening, so right. I like that. I like that flexibility. So uh, we took possession of it, and we started setting it up. Um, He's back. We're both back here in in Portland, but um, the the, the classes don't actually start until the end of the month. So we have a little time for the transition to happen. Well, very cool. Yeah. It was beautiful down there. Uh, Eugene is a really nice place. Lots of uh, good beer, as I'll mention maybe later. But I'm a little ashamed because the good beer I had was actually not a Eugene-based brewery.
0: Well, it's all right. It was – you were texting about this, and um, only in Oregon would this not be considered a local brewer, <laughs> since <laughs> right. it was brewed maybe what seventy miles, 50 away. I felt yeah.
1: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like a traitor—a traitor to all the Eugene brewers. <laughs> Sorry, guys. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. But what's uh, what's pretty cool, and while I was watching kids do this uh, in Eugene, is that um, unlike in Portland, where the the Willamette River has flown has flown through, flown f- uh, flowed thank you <laughs> uh, through the entire agricultural uh, Willamette Valley and by the time it, it hits Portland it's not the cleanest thing ever right in Eugene it's it's just coming out of the mountains so it's it's uh, swift and it's clean and I was watching lots of kids float float on by and um, there's a whole gaggle of uh, seemingly undergraduates who had um, at Al- Alton Baker Park which is f- sort of a, a big park on the bank of Willamette they walk up to the to the upstream part of the park jump in and just float on down uh to the end of the park and jump out and then walk back up and they did like two or three times while i was sitting there
0: yeah the willamette river is uh an interesting river it is quite wide it's a big river we have a lot of rivers in oregon but it's not very long so i don't know where it starts but it, it's not like it you know it's not like the snake river which you know goes hundreds of miles yeah it
1: starts in the cascades just uh above eugene and yeah it hits the hits the valley right at the beginning of the valley in uh in eugene and Flows on up and slows down as we come by, but, uh, I've actually spent my, because the, the pools, the city pools are closed this summer in Portland. My son has spent a lot of time swimming in the Willamette, um, which is kind of cool, uh, until, (laughs) until he has a toxic shock, but, uh, but he's kind of discovered the, the river in the city as it were, because he can't go to the local pools, which he would normally do.
0: Right. Oh, cool. Yeah. I mean, it is a a brown river by the time it hits Portland. Yeah. By the way, I
1: think half the city has discovered the river too. It's just a madhouse. I live close to a park on the river and it's just nuts this year, like every day, weekday, weekend, doesn't matter.
0: It's crazy, crazy, crazy. That's cool.
1: Such are the times we live in.
0: Indeed. Well, should we turn our attention to beer? And economics. And beeronomics, in hey. fact. We have a beeronomics <laughs> episode here, uh, which I will introduce now in my role as host. Over the past two weeks, we've I like been... how you
1: narrate your own I hosting.
0: Know. Well, you do too. The a... host
1: shall now turn to introduce the topic. <laughs>
0: you're, you're also self referential. Now I see why. <laughs> uh, it's meta. Uh, breaking down the fourth wall. Over the past two weeks, uh, we've been uh, unpacking distribution with Craig Malarkey, a wholesaler in Bellingham, Washington. I hope you heard those. If you didn't, go listen to them first.
1: Yeah,
0: definitely. We wanted to hear a distributor talk about distribution from his own perspective. Yet this tier is a strange one, and we thought it was worth delving into the issue in a special Beeronomics episode. So today, Patrick will give a more global perspective on markets and how they function and how distribution is an odd duck in the world of consumer products. Do you have anything to add before we... All that soon, but first, the news.
1: Okay, last week... We had a fresh slate of bad news, and we're tied to bad news. So we promised you, and we're making good on our promise. Only good news this week. Woo-hoo. Woo-hoo! Our first news item is pure joy. It's fresh hop season. Yay! Over the past week, our inboxes have been filled with the announcements of new releases. What's unusual is that this year, many of these beers are going into cans rather than kegs. The very qualities that make these fresh that make fresh hops so divine, vibrant green flavors and aromas are the most perishable. Breweries have traditionally put out few of these beers into package for fear their freshness will dull, but COVID has forced them to try a different approach.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, uh, usually
1: fresh hop season is when you, you rush out to your local pubs, get the stuff that's just been put on tap, right. super fresh,
0: and vibrant. A th- and a few breweries that are trying to get their fresh hop beers outside of the Willamette Valley will put them in cans of bottles, right? but not very many. And it's not really a a big package phenomenon, but this year, I think people are probably still doing some draft, but for the most part, we're not drinking beer on draft, so they're putting in cans. It's going to be super fascinating. Yeah, it
1: ties right into our distribution topic today, because you got to get those cans to distributors, distributors got to get them out, the speed of which can be compromised by all those steps. Uh, It'd be interesting to know if brewers, I assume they are, taking this into account as their Coming up with their fresh hop recipes and tweaking them, perhaps to
0: yeah, that's that's my guess. I I, I speculated in a blog post about this that. Uh, brewers...
1: <laughs> if I read your blog, I, like, I would know.
0: Ah, well, not to worry. We'll talk about it now. <laughs> uh, the yeah. The...
1: Oh, yeah, of course, Jeff. Yeah, I read that. Yeah, I know. That's why I mentioned it.
0: It's it was a perfect lead-in. Well done. Yeah. The brewers will try to instead of going for maximal fresh hop flavor. like the biggest burst they can get the most intense burst they're going to go for techniques that try to preserve that, that character, which probably includes some recipe, some process, and probably some packaging too. You know, they're probably going to be focused on uh, keeping as, as keep, you know, using whatever techniques they can to keep oxygen, dreaded oxygen out of their cans and their bottles. So that'll be interesting. And I think after the season goes, I'm going to loop back around to brewers and ask what they found. And if they, discovered any techniques or ingredients like is it possible that uh cascade fresh hop character lasts longer than mosaic or something like that yeah um so you know i wouldn't i wouldn't call this an ideal situation but it does provide us a a real-time opportunity to see uh to test some stuff and maybe learn something more about this that we wouldn't otherwise learn so that's kind of cool
1: yeah yeah i have not yet i'm trying to think i haven't been actually doing that much shopping for beer but i haven't yet Uh, Encountered one of these in the store.
0: Yeah, I haven't. uh, And they didn't have one on. They didn't
1: have one on tap at the brewery in um, or the brew pub in Eugene that I went to.
0: You say they did or they didn't? Did not. Yeah. So there's there's different ways you can make these beers, and for them to be out now, uh, they have to be added only to the cold side to the finished beer because they couldn't. You know, the harvest is happening even as we speak, and in fact, if you're a hop um fanatic you can uh, google hop harvest like the or not google but um go to your favorite uh, social media app and do a hashtag of hop harvest mm-hmm. and check out the cool pictures of all the pretty hops they're happening right now yeah so people are are putting these beers out they're not having a chance to brew the whole you know mm-hmm. put them in the the hot side and get them out on the market, what they're doing is putting them straight in the conditioning tank. and so that's look,
1: what, for, yeah. look for them in a few weeks.
0: Yeah. So it, it, this, this is just getting started and in the next several weeks. We'll get to try different versions of these beers. So yeah.
1: Maybe we'll get out, though maybe we'll become more for, uh, uh, well-traveled because they're now going to be packaged. So right. if you don't normally see a lot of fresh hot beers, maybe we'll know.
0: Yeah, it's true. It could actually reach more people. It'll be interesting. A lot of interesting things. Okay, another bit of interesting news from the Brewers Association economist Bart Watson. Three years ago, the organization introduced a seal member breweries could use touting their independence. The idea was to draw a distinction with craft brands owned by big companies and encourage drinkers to buy independent. It's apparently working. Citing research, Watson wrote, 49% said the independent seal would make them more likely, 8% less, and 43% said it wouldn't affect their decision at all to buy that beer. That net of forty plus forty-one percent between more and less likely is the highest over five iterations of the survey, and almost double from the first time we fielded in the fall of twenty seventeen. Huh, Interesting. Yeah. So, so
1: for those of you, you've probably seen it. It's a sort of the relief of an upside down beer bottle. Right. Little symbol.
0: Uh, and I'm
1: going by memory because I don't have one in front of me, but
0: yeah. So don't, we have some bottles in front and of now us. i was looking. Oh, here it.
1: it is, actually. I see it. Yeah, uh, <clears throat> Not on the bottle, but on the website that I, I went to to remember what beer I drank. <laughs> I drank.
0: <laughs> we have a couple of beers from a brewery we'll talk about in a minute in front of us, and they don't have it on there, so that's interesting.
1: Not everyone is in love with it, but in the day and age of big acquisitions of independent brewers by large conglomerates, it's the idea is to give uh, consumers, allow them to identify those that are still not owned by conglomerates.
0: <laughs> Yeah. And it's, it's an interesting thing. It's not actually uh, designed to sell a particular product, like putting the Brewers Association didn't imagine that if you put that on a, on a package, that it would help that package sell. What they're trying to do is more akin to a a political process where you're doing an awareness campaign. Mm -hmm. You're trying to shift public opinion on a certain issue and it's a much slower and much more diffuse project. And when they first did this, I suggested that it would be a decade in the making, and that um, the way we could judge is some percentage of the people, and it probably wouldn't even be a majority, but some percentage were making buying decisions based on independence, given that basically none were when they launched it and that that we could tell that then it was a success that way. Yeah. so this is I think they're ahead of the game I think they're doing so well.
1: my I or I remember talking about this originally, and I was saying that more information is better at, as consumer. I always support information, but I wonder, you know, beer geeks are the ones that are probably those that will notice it and are probably the ones that are more informed anyway. So, uh, what's interesting, what would be interesting to know is, is it the casual drinker? Do they, do they know the symbol? Do they understand what it means? And are they acting on it?
0: Yeah, that's interesting. You should let us know if you've seen this thing or especially if you, I've never heard of this, and you're listening to this podcast, <laughs> I would love to hear from you, because no doubt you've encountered a bottle or a can with this on it, uh, and you're not noticing it would be an interesting data point. So let us know what you think of that seal. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. There's that mm-hmm. fatigue kicking in. We may have to get to this beer soon. That might be the way to
1: combat yeah. this. <laughs> to get to cut through the fog. <laughs> That's right. I, you have your cup of coffee there. I don't know how well it's working. Uh, yeah, all right. We should. should we turn to our to our main topic?
0: It's running out, man. It's yeah, running out.
1: I know i better take over.
0: <laughs> yeah, let's let's run to our main topic. So I'm gonna let you take this over, but I'll just set it up a little bit. Okay. So we're we're talking about the distribution tier. And in in, in brewing in the in the brewing industry, there are three tiers. There's the there's the brewer or the producer. The, the person in the middle who delivers that beer, uh, to whom the brewer sells the beer, and that's the wholesaler. That That's the tier we're talking about. And the wholesaler turns around and sells it again to the uh, retailer. And it is possible for some breweries to own uh, their own distributors privately. So Anheuser-Busch owns a certain number of uh, distributorships in the United States. And even small breweries mm-hmm. might own a distributorship. Uh, and it's possible for small breweries, depending on state law, to self-distribute their own beer. Mm-hmm. But in nearly every state, you're going to have uh, this these independent this independent tier of uh, businesses who buy the beer, warehouse it, and sell it to retailers. And we talked to Craig Malarkey about that. Uh, and he, he kind of explained how that whole process worked. But we wanted to come back around and talk a little bit more about it from your perspective, from the economics perspective, because we're looking at a really weird market here that is not like other markets. And I was curious to hear from you. You know, <laughs> how do normal markets work? How is this different? Like, unpack all this stuff.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's 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 abnormal in many ways, um, but not unheard of. Um, but it does raise lots of interesting economics questions, and I'll just sort of Say at the outset, which is as an economist, it's still not 100% clear to me how to think, how to think, or how to feel about about these um, uh, this arrangement. Uh, and so I'll I'll try to sort of explain how I how I think about it as an economist, how I think about the market, and how I think about the impact of the wholesale or the distributor um, that's in between the retailer and the manufacturer. To give a little bit of uh, background, as I as I understand. Um, the this arrangement comes out sort of post-prohibition the, the idea was to kind of divide or to create a firewall between the manufacturers of alcohol and the consumers of alcohol because what temperance types were worried about was that people would drink too much and of course the idea is that if you have people selling directly to consumers then the manufacturers of course want people to drink as much as possible and we want to kind of create a create a buffer from that system. Um, as an economist, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense because the wholesaler, the distributor still makes money based on sales and sales volume. <laughs> so there's an incentive there to increase volumes uh, on both sides. So that's not entirely clear to me why that was thought to be the sort of solution or a solution. And then the second sort of narrative that that is bandied about when we're talking about this relationship is that uh, during prohibition, it was the mafia that had sort of acted as that, that wholesaler, <laughs> that distributor. Right. Um, they were the ones who were getting the alcohol out. Uh, and they were jealously guarding that role uh, when alcohol was made legal again. And so this was the sort of more nefarious explanation is that the mafia were involved in making sure that this became sort of the norm and was legislated.
0: I mean, it does seem like this is a, a decent biz- business model because you're, uh, you're the one kind of protected... Tier in this whole thing, you know, you're yep, you're kind of sitting pretty in a way.
1: Yeah, and so there's instances where something like that is just sort of almost a pure rent-seeking opportunity, and rent-seeking is basically sort of above-normal uh, returns you get from an economic activity. So if you provide some value and you get compensated for the value you provide, then that's just sort of a normal economic return. But if you uh, get an abnormal economic return um, solely due to the fact that, for example, maybe you have a monopoly in a certain uh, market or you are a gatekeeper and only through you can uh, people do what they want. So sort of like a, you can even think of corruption in a bureaucrat or something like that. And I'll give you a really good example. I might have used the example in the pod before, so if the, <laughs> longtime listeners forgive me. But uh, when I was living in, in Brazil, they have um, essentially what we would call a notary public um, so someone who certifies your signature as your own. Uh, but here in, in Brazil, it's much more formalized, and there's offices in, uh, all over Brazil in every city. There's these, um, they're called cartorios, and they're basically notary publics, but they have their own um, uh, office, and you're obliged to use them for almost any legal document. And so uh, I'll give you a good example. Like I needed sort of residency papers in Brazil and in order to do so, I had to uh, show them my passport. Okay, so normally in the, in in a lot of countries, you just walk into the bureaucrat's office and you show them your passport. They take a look at it, say, "Okay, this is you," and they sign off. Well, uh, you can't do that in Brazil. In Brazil, you have to go get a copy of your passport. It has to be confirmed as authentic by the notary public, by the cartorio, and then you take that that sheet of paper into the bureaucrat. So, in many ways, their notary publics serve. Uh, a purpose and a value. But in this case, to me, it seemed pure rent-seeking. Yeah. Like there was absolutely no reason why just the person at the desk couldn't look at my passport and say, yes, this is your passport, fine. And right. on we go.
0: You create this level of bureaucracy that people can just extract value yeah. from without providing any service.
1: So this is the first way in which I approach this sort of distributor relationship. Uh, these distributors are there because they're legally obliged to be there. And then the question as an economist is, would they exist in the absence of the legislation? And that's sort of the key question for me. In other which, words-
0: Which you actually ask Craig.
1: Which I asked Craig, and he didn't actually give a, uh, an answer to, not not because he was dodging it. I just don't think he understood the sort of nature of my uh, of my question. Um, and, and this is how I think about it. So there's a lot of things that distributors do that are valuable. Like they're pretty sophisticated logistics operations, as we talked about, you have to, get a perishable product, you have to store a perishable product, you have to move a perishable product to all the different outlets, and there are many, many in different forms. There are bottles, cans, kegs, right? Uh, there's also economies of scale. So warehousing beer is expensive, it requires uh, sometimes a refrigerated space, <laughs> unfortunately many times on refrigerated space. Right. <laughs> But it requires buildings and places to store them, and it requires forklifts and place things to move around. So there's a lot of economies of scale. There's economies of scope. You have a fleet of delivery trucks, um, and just to give you a very simple example of economies of scale, if you have a big truck that has six different brands of beer on there, it's a lot uh, more efficient than having six little trucks, each with their own brands of beer, running around. Right. Okay. So it's not even if you want to sort of think about this environmentally, maybe that's an issue as well. Uh, They do marketing, as Craig said, they sort of keep track of what beers move in which locations and what beers sell well and and can sort of adjust to that as well. And then in many cases, uh, we we got into this a little bit, but they actually perform a service for the retailer as well. So they'll come and they'll stock the shelves and they'll make them look pretty and they'll have special displays they'll put up and they'll sort of manage your beer aisle for you.
0: They'll take away the old product that's not sold They'll take away the old
1: product that's not sold if, hopefully, hopefully.
0: <laughs> ideally yeah
1: ideally. so there's a lot of things you could argue are valuable and a lot of things that would be very difficult for small particularly small brewers to do themselves um
0: and i mean distributors exist in other product categories right there's there's Soda distributors, people who distribute soda and stuff like that, and I know in the cannabis industry that my wife is in there, there are distributors there as well. They're yep. not mandated, so they these you know, they, it's clear that uh, there's a there's a need for this specialized service.
1: Yeah, and I'll give you another example, um, uh, just because it pops into my head. But there's a little independent toy store around the corner from my house, and that toy store essentially uh, doesn't go to all the different manufacturers of all the different toys, but there's a middle person involved that basically offers this whole wholesale catalog of toys from all these different manufacturers to places just like hers. Mm -hmm. She's not obliged to use that person. We'll get into that in a moment. (laughs) Uh, And she's uh, perfectly um, free to to buy other things from other places as well. But it's very convenient for her to make a big order and say, I want this many Legos and this many Playmobil and this many, you know, uh, Doug and Melissa puzzles and things like that. Um, Doug and is that a thing? I, th- I think it's Melissa and Doug. Actually, I was trying to remember my my kids are now older, so the little kid toys are starting to fade in my memory. But yes,
0: uh, I have in laws called who are Doug and Melinda. Uh, Melissa, so that's really interesting. Mm.
1: Yeah, Do they make puzzles. Maybe they're maybe uh, they they're don't rich they, because they make wooden toys. No, and puzzles.
0: they don't. They're PhDs, pharmaceutical folks. So
1: yeah, so so that's a good point. There are lots of examples in the marketplace where these middle people exist uh, these, um, uh, businesses are there for, for precisely a lot of the same reasons. Uh, and so it's not clear to me that if there weren't a mandated relationship, if, if distributors weren't mandated by legislation, uh, that they wouldn't exist anyway. And in fact, I think it's highly likely that they would exist in some form. And the question is, sort of what would that look like.
0: And the distance between what that looks like and what we have now, I think, can be explained in some ways by this the a thing you alluded to a minute ago, the franchise laws. I don't know if you want to go there now. but
1: So before we get into the franchise laws themselves... Um,
0: we should have this beer?
1: Oh, yeah, let's definitely have the beer. But
0: what we were you going to say? Well, I'll finish that so we don't our old minds don't forget it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, what I was going to say is that... The landscape. Talking about distribut- distributors now in the landscape of of sort of the world awash and craft beer and brewers, small brewers, is a lot different than I think than talking about distributors back uh, in the day when there was mostly big macro brewers. Because I think we tend to take a more negative view now, but it's probably true that this distributor relationship helped. The craft beer revolution happen, and in fact might have been fundamental to the craft beer revolution because another how do you shoe, shoehorn a small brewer's beer in uh, amongst all of these giants
0: right and i think well i'm going to follow you we, one thing that's interesting to note about the the uh, beer distributors over the craft era is how much they've changed uh, when I was writing Widmer Way, um, I talked to an old-time beer distributor, in, uh, or actually a guy who, who was the lobbyist for the old, old the beer distributors in the 1970s and early 80s, and there were maybe a dozen beers that were sold in Portland at the time. Right. So this is like Henry <laughs> Weinhard's and Coors. And, Stop and think
1: about that for a minute. A dozen beers. Yeah, oh my like God.
0: in the entire, and that I think right. that probably included a, an import or two. Every single one of them had their own distributor. Wow. So things have really changed and it, and it yeah. happened. It, it was co-emergent with this craft here. Yeah.
1: And we can talk about consolidation as well and the economics behind that. But let's go back. Um, oh, let's stop and have a beer. <laughs> what is this?
0: So we we were sent uh, some beer by Rough House Brewing in San Marcos, Texas, which is just south of uh, Austin.
1: In the Texas Hill Country. In the
0: te- uh, Texas Hill Country. And it's actually a farmhouse brewery. Um, they have a farm. And uh, one of the things that is cool about them is they harvested their own yeast, which I think is a sac strain. I don't think it's a, huh? I think it's a, um, not a, not a Brett strain and they use that and it's very farmhousey. and we have, so I don't know anything about the beer. We're, we have two beers here to try today. Ona, which is a, a fruited spiced amber ale and the beer that I just poured out, which is Treeform, form, a farmhouse India pale ale.
1: Yeah, that's what. That's what intrigued me. Farmhouse yeah. India Pale L. Thank you very much, by the way, Rough House Brewing for sending along beer. And as we said on occasions before, you send us beer, we will try your beer.
0: Absolutely, it's wonderful for us to try new beers, try, try it wild, li- live and wild on on the air. Uh, I got to tell you too, uh, the labels on what this brewer uses. Gorgeous! They're absolutely spectacular. They have illustrations by Graham Francoise. I don't know. They're...
1: They're the same illustrator on all. Yeah. Graham Francois? How I would, yes. Uh,
0: and there are these kind of line drawings. Well, not line drawings. I don't know how you call them, but they're um, they're super cool. So check those out as well. So what do you think of this beer?
1: Uh, hold on. Give me a moment. Hmm. I would call it a farmhouse India Pale. It's got a.
0: It's like a hoppy saison.
1: Really, it's it's like a hoppy saison. It's like Dupont on steroids. (laughs)
0: Right, it's really nice. I got to say, I'm super loving this beer. It's uh, the the rusticity is just Mm. bang on. There's the the malts are. It's it's a bit, uh, a bit hazy. Not 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 hazy IPA hazy, but like. Looks like honey, kind of, in the glass. Out of
1: a 5.5 or 6 on the hazemeter.
0: I'd say a dead 5 myself.
1: Right. Yeah, I'm actually... I got a little bit too little in here. Yeah, okay.
0: But um, exactly what I would expect a saison to look like. Mm-hmm. Very rustic. And the, the, the malts actually seem uh, rustic. Almost, I'm getting like rye bread... Rye cracker in there, yeah, uh, and maybe wheat, just kind of full flavored stuff. Um, nice yeast character, mm-hmm. subtle but farmhousey, and then all those hops. It's really nice.
1: I was gonna say it. Sort of you sort of have a bang on saison underneath, easily identifiable mm-hmm. in look, in aroma. Many in people, taste, and then it's just got a it's got a big, a big. trying to read the right adjective i was going to say a big boom of hops on the top that sounded wrong but a but a a healthy dollop of hop
0: and they're nice herbal uh Mm -hmm. kind of not that's not mosaic
1: right right it's not it's not (laughs) sweaty it's yeah exactly um it's the right kind of hops Mm, this is really good there is a i'm gonna say it it took about two three sips for me to really kind of get that balance on my palate you know what i mean
0: yeah there's a um mm. uh, yeah. now it's
1: uh
0: lovely sorry kind of a lemongrass thing there that yeah. i think is a combo between the hops and the yeast that's starting it... to
1: come through with the yeah end. it's actually uh <laughs> you poured me out the glass is gone but it uh but each sip has revealed a little bit more
0: we i brought these out before we started this and we sat here and talked for a half an hour and uh it's it's pretty warm so these have warmed up and i got quite a big head uh so you didn't actually get a lot of beer in my defense.
1: In I'm your defense. Pour, I'm pouring more. Yeah, it's a very complex beer, so it's each each sip has revealed something a little new.
0: It's an amazing summer beer. I could drink this all summer long. Oh, good job.
1: Well done, Rough House. Yeah, Rough House. Thank, thank you. Thank you for
0: sending us. <laughs> this was a great beer. All right,
1: we'll try the other one in a few minutes.
0: Yeah. Back, better back talk to about. distribution. Yeah.
1: So let's stop for a second and talk about franchise laws, because I'm not even... Uh you might even be able to tell me a little bit more, but essentially the essence of franchise laws are once you enter a relationship with a distributor as a brewer, that's it. You're contractually obliged to stay with that distributor for, I guess it probably depends on the state, but in many states pretty much until time immemorial.
0: Yeah. You can legally yeah. buy yourself out in some states.
1: I don't think time immemorial you can go forward, right? more <laughs> backwards. <laughs> until the end of time. Thank you.
0: There you go. <laughs> yeah, memorial does suggest death. It's
1: memory, right? Yeah, yeah, so, yeah.
0: yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's right. And it, you know, these these vary. They're state laws, and they vary state by state. And in some states, um, there are there are easier ways to end these. And in some states, they're much much more difficult to get out of. Uh, so it, yeah, it really varies. And I think the the rationale behind them is that, as we heard from Craig the distributor does a lot of work in promoting the brand and building the brand up. And so yeah, that's distributors always like to talk about how this protects them from building a brand up and then having them walk to a different distributor. Yeah.
1: And I understand why he says that, but that's horse Bucky. Uh, <laughs> do, do explain. Well, that's true of any business relationship for anything all the time. And we write <laughs> free contracts to, to engage in these relationships. Just think about the, you know, uh, I'm an advertising agency and I spend, three years building up the Reese's Pieces account or something like that just to use something completely random. Uh, I mean, that's it. That's what I was paid to do. Uh, I don't think that there's anything inherent in this relationship that necessitates a lot. That's the sort of long-term buy-in. And this is where you get into the the serious I, I, anti-competitive, antitrust concerns and really where the rent seeking could potentially mm-hmm. come out. So we have it on reasonably uh, uh good authority that you know you you're probably talking about margins in the 20 to 25 percent range on average apparently margins are much lower for like the big uh macro uh high volume brands mm-hmm. the Bud Light I guess and a lot higher for craft beer so I mean that's a pretty healthy margin. So if you're a consumer you're probably about 20% of what you're spending is probably going to the distributor. Right. Now maybe that's reasonable uh certainly they're providing some value as we were talking about is it worth 20 percent of the beer it's questionable and i suspect that these kinds of franchise laws are probably responsible for jacking that up a lot more than they otherwise would be because what you'd really like uh, from an economist's perspective is for a brewer to be free to enter any kind of contract they want you know these two businesses get together and negotiate and say well look i'll give you uh, two years let's sign a 2-year contract and if i'm happy with the relationship after 2 years and you're happy with the relationship we'll renew yeah right and so that's kind of uh, how it happens if you're a if you're a brewer and you sign up with a distributor and in after 2 years things aren't going well then what and that's where you get i think into trouble and that's where as a brewer you can probably really get frustrated by this type of
0: relationship and i think from my casual perspective uh, this is becoming a bigger and bigger deal because we're seeing uh, consolidation in this wholesale tier. and so more and more brands are getting coagulating under uh, one one you know one one distributor. and it you know if, if you're a if you're a small, unimportant, a brewery brand in that large house, it can be very difficult for you to make any moves. Uh, they're probably not representing you as well as they are. They're more central brands. And they're probably not, you know, they they don't have a huge incentive to work on your brand because they've already got so many other brands. So right. there's not a whole lot in it for them. And then you're stuck if you're one of these little breweries. Yeah.
1: So now as an economist, I'm left with a conundrum, which is, okay, so if this is true, and if if it's true that distributors will charge up 30 35% markup on craft beer brands. You would think, hey now, why not self-distribute? Like uh, in Oregon and in other places, uh, you can self-distribute up to a fairly significant amount. And so, if what they're offering isn't worthwhile and if you can, you know, save maybe not a whole all the 35% because you have to distribute at the cost of money, but maybe you can undercut those prices. Why isn't it happening? Why isn't that the competitive edge? And again, that comes to, I think, the problem with self-distribution is the lack of economies of scale and scope. Right. So it's really expensive to have a bunch of small little trucks driving all over, trying to distribute yourself, trying to build up those individual relationships with bars and and corner stores, bodegas, big retail stores that's hard and expensive. And so that's, as an economist, it's very interesting to me. Some people have done it. I remember early on, I think Ninkasi was self-distributing um, when they were small little guys.
0: <laughs> yeah. I don't know about Ninkasi. Famously, there's a brewery now very well. Uh, Widmer was self-distributing until the mid 1990s. And they were dis- they were distributing giant amounts of beer in the Portland area, like, you know, on the order of 30, 40,000 barrels. Yeah,
1: I could be wrong, but I remember, and my memory is that in around 2006, when I arrived in Corvallis, I remember seeing Ninkazi trucks around, bringing their beer. But So again, we've got this the, this sort of uh, idea that distributors are providing something, they, they can capitalize on these economies of scale and scope, and we'll talk about the consolidation because that's sort of the key factor. And yet, lots of places still haven't distributed. I was mentioning to you off air that Uh, I recently spent a a short time in Astoria, Oregon, was uh, wandering by this uh, warehouse that had been uh, fitted out by Fort George, which is a a craft brewery in Astoria, Oregon. And they had um, created this big warehouse and there's a bunch of delivery trucks. And I said to you, wow, are Fort George self-distributing? And if so, this is amazing. But You disabused me of that idea, but gave me another intriguing bit of information, which is that they own their own distributor.
0: Yeah, they started their own distributorship and they distribute uh, craft brands. So uh, Astoria is up in the very far northwest corner of the state and they distribute, uh, I think, into Washington as well, sort of that area of the state.
1: Yeah, Long Beach Peninsula and stuff, I imagine. So there's another area in which the market can potentially sort of, you can see this sort of competitive pressure perhaps. But fundamentally, it's, a not a, it's not a terribly competitive market um, and looks like it's becoming less and less competitive due to uh, uh, consolidation, mergers, and acquisitions.
0: Consolidation is a huge, huge issue. And I, I I don't know why it's not getting more attention. Probably people like me are not writing about it and I should write about this. But um, we mentioned briefly in our talk with Craig a company called Reyes, which is uh, South... Uh, a Southern California distributorship, which is part of a conglomerate that's one of the biggest companies in the United States, and they have been quickly buying up distributorships. They've sort of been growing like an amoeba north. Uh, they have they have distributorships outside the West Coast as well, but particularly on the West Coast, they're, they're – I mean – there are rumors that they're going to buy up Columbia here in in Oregon, which is uh, one of the biggest distributors on the West Coast, and that would greatly expand their footprint. But it's already giant and growing. Um, and Columbia uh, here in Portland has a huge portfolio, which is called a book. Um, not you know, probably hundreds of companies they represent, yeah. certainly scores, uh, and and many of those are are breweries. And so, we're seeing this consolidation. Uh, you you know if you're a small brewery, if you're a brewery, any kind of brewery, this means you just have fewer and fewer choices of where to go, uh, you know, yeah. wh- which 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 group to work with. And, and
1: as a consumer, again, how do you think about it? On one hand, maybe there is economies of scale and scope that they're capitalizing on, which allows them to bring the beer to you at a lower margin. But on the other hand. There's not a lot of competition out there, so there's no incentive to bring you a lower margin. And in fact, I'm not convinced that those economies of scale sort of uh, really uh, uh, continue to be realized past sort of a more regional uh, company. In other words, I'm not sure that Reyes in San Diego County is helping reyes in portland oregon if they buy mm-hmm. <laughs> uh at all like i don't really see the necessarily the economies there um, yeah there might, I, be, a, there might right. be a few economies at the very top of the corporation like you know hr is centralized and things like that who knows but probably right. nothing that the, the consumer is really gonna really going to see so that becomes more worrying because then as a uh as a consumer the other thing i value is variety
0: and i, I think on this point it one thing that Craig mentioned, and I, I, I believe this is probably accurate. Uh, he, he really talked about his company, Sound Distributor, up there in Bellingham, being able to uh, really one, one, one way they felt that they had had a lot of value was their service component, and they knew their clients both in the you know their breweries and their yeah. retailers, and they really you know they knew everybody as a first name basis, and this was a thing that he was really proud of. Yeah. Um, there is value in that, and the bigger distributors get the less you you have that
1: yeah uh okay a couple of things i want to i'm trying to figure out how to, f- how to shoehorn in here but um
0: all right i'm opening the second beer one you're, you're th- not ready to go for it yet but i i'm moving on oh but
1: i am by the way this this is truly exceptional whiskey i know
0: it's really good isn't it
1: this is fabulous i am really enjoying it that's why i haven't i'm savoring
0: it's I am a, as you know, I'm a Saison fanatic and yes, uh, I'm tough on Saisons. Yeah. There, I don't, there's a, there's a bunch, it's pretty easy to get a, to make a, a, a B Saison, B, B minus. Like a lot of them clear that bar, but to mm-hmm. get up into the higher echelons, it's one of the hardest beers to make well. I, I have a lot of criteria that I subject these beers to. And man, this one hits, hitting them all.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's really good. Well done. Okay. So one little tidbit. I don't know how to, uh, uh, to really analyze this too, too much as an economist, but just uh, a nugget too good to not mention is that uh, distributors cannot be publicly traded companies.
0: Yeah, which is a, something I don't know anything about. So
1: the idea, I guess, was that uh, the sort of short-term profit goals that shareholders demand. Uh, we're inconsistent with the public interest of creating this buffer in the our, doesn't make any sense to me honestly uh, but it is it does mean that these distributors are not publicly traded companies these are family-owned companies um, yeah what I, sorry how that how that matters I'm not sure uh, but it probably means that you have um, less ability you know in talking about uh, this sort of um, uh, consolidation. You have less, less ability for these um, uh, new companies necessarily to sort of come in and see opportunities and, and start competing in different markets um, because uh, it takes a fair amount of
0: capital to get started. Yeah. These are intensely capital heavy companies because you have to have warehouses and, and trucks uh, to get started. And that's really expensive to get going.
1: It doesn't mean you can't have venture capital that's coming into a sort of uh, a private business, but it's less likely uh okay so that, that was one thing i had to throw in there and again i don't uh, uh i don't know how to oh well, the other thing I, I forgot is to be all pedantic about when i was talking about margins i forgot to sort of mention uh, double marginalization.
0: you missed an opportunity to, I be know, pedantic. I an
1: opportunity to throw in some <laughs> jargon oh man double marginalization which is how oh. we think about we are talking about these three-tier relationships when you've got a you've got a manufacturer and then a uh, a wholesaler and then a retailer which exists in many different markets when, when they're when these are not perfectly competitive markets we call this double marginalization so the 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 manufacturer takes their margin their profits they take their profits and then the wholesaler comes in and they take another profit so we just talked about how you know 20 25 percent is sort of what their uh, their margin is and so double marginalization is something that's well studied in economics and sort of intuition is obvious I won't get into that but just wanted everyone to know the term of art so they can they Double can, marginalization. That's so they, good. They can, bore, they can bore their friends just like I do when I'm at parties.
0: <laughs> well, and and uh, I used to write a lot about the uh, Oregon beer tax uh, when it was floated two or three sessions in a row where they were going to raise it exorbitantly. Um, and they kept identifying the cost per, uh, per pint of beer um, based on volume rather than this double marginalization thing. And it was an excise tax on breweries. So you're getting it sold twice, you know, and it was going to telescope out. And if people understood double marginalization, I think that would have, been a, <laughs> I, I didn't know that term then. But.
1: Look it up. That's right. Uh, okay. So the other thing we need to get into, and we tried to press Craig on this, And of course he wouldn't, when, is it Craig or Greg? Craig. Craig, thank you. Okay. And he wouldn't, I get into this too much and and I don't blame him at all, but there are lots of uh, ways in which this system can be corrupted. Um,
0: Yeah. And and he didn't, he really didn't want to touch this, but we got to talk about it. It's a big deal.
1: What do you do if you're a beer manufacturer and you want your uh, wholesale, your distributor to feature your brands or push your brands? You just sit back and hope that they're going to be nice or are there ways in which you can kind of, uh, goose the system a bit and in fact it happens all the time so maybe not direct cash payments that are out of contract but you can do things like send them on uh, junkets and vacations and do all kinds of things wine and dine your, your distributor and then uh, there's also the other end which is the sort of pay to play aspect which is how do you get tap handles how do you get your beer into places um, do uh, retailers expect kickbacks from their
0: distributors. And this issue is not nearly as obvious as it as it seems because there are so many ways, that, you know, egregious pay to play where a distributor is just paying a retailer a flat, you know, just giving them money to put a beer on is, is relatively rare. But there are many techniques where distributors are able to offer discounts or pass things forward. Uh, some of them is quasi legal. Some of it's more difficult to figure out. Uh, there was a I did a post on this some years back, and uh, somebody told me how uh, a distributor was getting uh, a, bre- a brewery was offering a special that if the distributor sold X amount of kegs, mm-hmm. uh, they the the brewery would would sell it at a discount. right? And so the the distributor went to the last retailer and he said, he still had two kegs to sell. And he <laughs> said, if you buy these two kegs, I'll share part of the kickback with you. <laughs> you know, I'll pass it forward yeah. to you. And right. it just all happened under the table and it, it all looked fine. Yeah. Uh, so there are those kinds of things that happen. And, and uh, uh, you know, Craig, I think Craig's reaction was really revealing in one way. Distributors really, really, really don't want to talk about it. And yet, because of their position in this in this relationship, they're under enormous pressure to, you know, make deals, make sure things, make sure that you know you got you got three tap handles that are going to have IPA. Uh, you you know you want your house to have one of those tap taps. Yeah, I mean, I
1: mean, his defense was like, well, you know, we're not going to it's not going to work if your beer sucks and another beer is great, like. Um, there's good beer cells, and so we have to give them the beer that people want, but you know there's four, five, six, seven, eight, twelve different great IPAs out there, right all brewed by uh, by the brewery. so how do you get your beer pushed and get the one that ends up on the top handles in the big bars and stuff
0: and And that argument really falls on its own face when you think about uh, if the small brewer said, "Well, wait a second, they're yeah. never going to ask for my beer when you mm-hmm. walk into a, into a you know a pub or a restaurant. So does that mean that you're never going to sell my beer? I thought your whole thing was you're going to sell my beer. So it's a little bit circular. And this is the difficulty distributors are in there. They have so many masters that they have to, yeah. you know, they, they have, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a challenging position.
1: And big and medium sized brewers I know have, you know, million, they spend millions of dollars on distributor incentives. They do all kinds of things, you know, all kinds of junkets, cash payments, incentives, all this stuff happens. And by the way, it's not clear to me, you know, we can say a lot of this underhanded, but I'm sure there's lots of incentives that are written into contracts, in, written into legal contracts as well. So it's not just
0: yeah, there are and there are ways. There there are things that are clearly legal, things that are clearly illegal, and then a way in which these two things can kind of get murky in the middle. And uh, you know, so it's 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 challenging to police this stuff unless you know it's it's like in in politics, a quid pro quo. The Supreme Court has now decided that a quid pro Quid pro quo is basically, you know, somebody taking a, a sack full of cash to do a specific thing. But that's not really how things work, right? right. So um, uh, you, you can pay people off in much more subtle ways. And in, in distribution, and especially uh, in, in every city and every state is a little bit different. And if they police it more carefully, you're going to see less of that. And I've heard time and time again that Portland is a really... Uh, comparatively clean city and places mm-hmm. like chicago are not very clean <laughs> shockingly yeah, I told my al capone's right. whole city has yeah. not cleaned itself it's not on up a
1: 20 on, on, bill on the right <laughs> probably 50 bill by the way if you're going to chicago these days yeah. uh yeah so why do we care though as an economist make, like
0: make sure your bribe is big enough yeah
1: 20 dollars they probably just like okay you're going to jail
0: now.
1: <laughs> uh <laughs> yeah maybe a hundred dollar bill okay uh why do we care though as an economist what what Uh, who cares, right? The answer is that this is all part of the cost. And so this is all going to end up as uh, going into the cost of a beer to a consumer, right? So if all of this stuff is happening, if this is sort of stuff on top, then this is all stuff that will end up affecting consumers. And then the other aspect, of course, is choice. So if this means that there are fewer brands that can afford this and therefore they become featured brands and therefore they push other brands out, it means there also could be ultimately less choice.
0: And I think the third, the third thing is the, you know, we as citizens, uh, have an expect should have an expectation that regulation is set up so that corruption isn't encouraged in business, and there are better and worse regulation regulatory environments to encourage or discourage corruption, and so that's another you know another element.
1: I yeah, think. and without competitive pressures, there's. Uh, No guarantee that these kinds of consumer, pro-consumer incentives are getting transmitted. So, you know, what is the incentive for a distributor to work hard? What is the incentive for a distributor to really push a lot of variety out there? What's the incentive for a distributor to push new and interesting beers? Uh, Lazy distributors, of course, are just going to keep pushing Bud Light or whatever sort of the easy thing to sell is. Right. Um, And so, you know, it is these kinds of things are a concern, especially if you're interested in craft beer. On the other hand, uh, the distributors, this distributor relationship, has had a big role in promoting craft beer and allowing for craft beer to sort of find wide audience. I think. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, I think you have to say both things uh, at the same time, and then, which is why, as an economist, it's really hard to know how to think about distribution overall.
0: Yeah, as a beer fan, I, I've I've been coming to the place where I feel like uh there needs there needs to be pretty big uh, distribution reform uh, and we also need to protect distributors right so it's it's a yes and <laughs> situation we
1: uh i guess i mean i i could see i could see a complete uh deregulation and it would be interesting to see what would happen so imagine that there were no laws anymore that mandated distributors i believe that distributors would exist i believe that those uh, I don't. I think a lot of big brewers might do what Anheuser-Busch has done, and do a lot of their own distributors. They might also offer either in-house brands or some other brands, so they can have a big enough book to.
0: Yeah, I do. I I want, I, I worry that in that situation, you would in, you would empower uh, the stronger players in a, in a in a in a market. So probably in Portland, you wouldn't be empowering Anheuser-Busch, but you might be empowering. Uh, deschutes and cba mm-hmm. good point so you know that you do have to consider like how do we because part isn't part of uh, a good a good market is ensuring through regulatory through, through regulation that it's an even playing field right yeah
1: well so antitrust wouldn't go away right so you would still have these anti uh this antitrust laws or would they be strong enough it's hard to say because uh how we define a competitive uh marketplace depends and uh, and how how much competition is enough so that we we're not concerned that's another issue and particularly when you've got all of these economies of scale and scope that distributors can point to and say look you know it makes sense there's only two distributors right because there's such big economies of scale and this is pro consumer because we save money we're right. very efficient right and so that's the that's the issue i think in a mature market like portland there'd always be room for a little distributor like a, i don't know like a point blank or something like that and say look i have 26 of the coolest, hottest, greatest craft brewers on my book, you know, you want these beers, consumers want these beers, you know, work with me and, and they probably find some retail space, but, but you're right. I think especially in less mature markets, that could be a real concern.
0: Hmm. So I have a question for you, Mr. Economist. Yeah. Uh, If you, would would you, would you just totally deregulate? Would you uh, change franchise laws so that it was based on years? Like what? If I if I gave you the the reins to rewrite these rules, but yeah, you do? I mean, as a, keep a, in mind I, you want to protect retailers, maybe wholesalers, I don't know, but certainly breweries. Yeah. All, you got to balance the needs of all three.
1: I think it's easy for me right now as a practical matter. I would just do away with franchise laws.
0: Just dump them. I
1: would say you have you know you can keep the existing distributor laws or, or wholesale laws, but yeah, dump this idea that that you mandate the terms of a contract and basically say you can you can write a contract for whatever period you want and. Uh, you know, Craig said, oh, well, you know, this is important because we invest a lot, but that's, that's business. Everybody invests a lot. And, <laughs> and sure. So if I'm a, if I'm a brewer, I might know that if I'm only going to write a one year contract with somebody that might not work as hard for me as if I write a three year contract, but that's all part of it, right? It's an open negotiation and I can, and I can uh, negotiate this. You might even be able to negotiate the terms of your exit if you want to exit early right. on either side. All this stuff I think is pro business, pro consumer. Um, an easy way to sort of have a reform, uh, but keep most of the existing structure. So, as a practical matter, I think this is something that could be achieved. Uh, and for me, it's hard to see any downside at all, unless I'm a distributor who really likes this.
0: Yeah, yeah, I, I think distributors do really like it, and I think there is a a, a rent-seeking quality. Um, it's hard to it's hard to lose money as a beer distributor. Um, some of the biggest When you look at wealth in the United States, a lot of people got really rich making uh, distributing beer. John McCain's wife, she came from a a beer distribution. She, I think, the third third generation beer distributor. And when he married her, you know, they had like those twenty houses or whatever. Well, that's all beer distribution money. It's you know, it's 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 a very it's a very nice business, and it's a reason why when you look at uh, lobbying, state by state lobbying, one of the most powerful. Uh, lobbyists in any state is always going to be the beer distributor lobby because they have absolutely no incentive to change the rules. They have they have created rules that are especially uh, yeah, good for their situation. Yeah. Um, and it's also why people like Craig don't like to talk about this stuff very much. <laughs> There's no upside in it.
1: Yeah. And I think distributors like to fly under the radar. Like, yeah. I don't think people like, I don't think they like to know you exist very much. It was very hard to find anyone to talk to us. So thanks very much, Craig, for agreeing to do it. But, you know, even their trucks, you know, they brand their trucks with their clients. They don't. Right. Doesn't, doesn't, you
0: don't see a Columbia distributors track or a sound no, distributors. A little, it's
1: written in small type on, on the, you know, in the cab door or something yeah. like that. But otherwise, it's got this big, giant
0: whatever it is. And you, you know. pointed out, I think, really quite cleverly that uh, even in in terms of the political, uh, the whole political mechanics, if, if I as a politician take money from Miletus um, Beverage, it doesn't look like anything, you know, it's like
1: yeah, small family business.
0: Yeah. It's a small family business. Whereas (laughs) if I take money from Anheuser-Busch, you know, a lot of people are going to have a reaction to that. And, uh, uh, it, it may well be the same, the same company. Uh, Meletus beverage is an, it's a red house, uh, blue houses and red houses. There's kind of every, (laughs) every city has houses associated with now Molson Coors, uh, and Anheuser-Busch. So it, you know, it's a, it's an Anheuser-Busch house. And yet, um, it's going to raise way, way, way less political friction uh, to take a, a contribution from elitists than Anheuser-Busch.
1: Yeah, and then one last political economy thing I'll say, which is, it's a lot harder. The status quo is always much easier to maintain because you create stakeholders. With any kind of legislation, you create stakeholders. Right. Um,
0: you always pick winners and losers.
1: Yes, you always exactly. You always pick winners and losers, and so the winners have a big incentive to to maintain that position, and the losers, it's very hard because they're losers, right? right.
0: <laughs> and they
1: have a hard time generating interest around their cause.
0: So yeah, I would love to put out a. a a call to any, anybody, and you don't have to go on the record. You can go off the record here. Uh, if you own a uh, own or work in the beer industry as a brewery and you have strong opinions about uh, distribution, let us know um, what it's like for you, what the upsides and downsides are. We haven't talked to a brewer about this. Brewers are also reluctant to talk because yeah. of the franchise laws. There's not a lot of flexibility. So the last thing you want to do is alienate your partner in this business. Um, so if you have uh any thoughts let us know it's an endlessly fascinating discussion and i hope it can continue
1: i know we're going long but i have one final thought as oh, we go yeah. out which is that the one other thing that you could say is very positive for distributors especially for small brewers is that they're not uh there there's a potential asymmetric relationship in sort of power and control so if i'm a small brewer and i'm trying to get safeway to sell my beer or from the northeast wegmans to sell my beer they can They can say, look, this is when I'll pay you for your beer and really dictate the terms. And, of course, they're going to want a really low price so they can turn around and sell a lot of it. And so you can be at a real disadvantage trying to find your way into retail outlets. And so the one thing the distributor can do is is sort of advocate on your behalf. You're part of a whole host of clients that, look, I'll give you all these beers, but these are the prices you're going to get. And so I think that that, that's another way in which you could argue that distributors are pro are are a good thing for
0: brewers. That's right, and and we don't need to go too deeply in this, but uh, the bigger the dis- distributor, the more access they're going to have to bigger retailers, like uh, so that might be a Safeway in a city, but also it will be places owned by uh, big uh, uh, chain restaurants and stadiums and stuff like that too. So they they because nope. because if you're a stadium, you're not going to want to. Work with forty-seven different d- beer distributors. Yep. You are going to work with like one or two, and that's it. And yeah. and so it's helpful to be,
1: yeah, one uh, big easy. truck coming up and unloading all the stuff.
0: That's, that's right. right. Yeah, you do. <laughs> populating your tap <laughs> Kind of everybody wants that.
1: So we've been, by the way, we've sort of uh, buried this, but we've been quaffing this second Rough House
0: beer. Yeah,
1: it's called Ona,
0: and I was skeptical. Of this Farmhouse one, I got to tell you, uh, because it has seeds of grains of paradise, which is my least favorite of all of the beer. Uh, herbs, uh, as well as which fruit?
1: Uh, Montmorency cherries.
0: Cherries, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, both are incredibly gently used. I think it's yes. again <laughs> really clever, elegant beer. These guys know what they're doing.
1: I think restraint, especially in farmhouse brewing, technique obviously to get the base beer right, mm-hmm. and then restraint is key. And and both of these are are lovely beers because I think even with the IPA, which is intended to be hoppy it's still right it's still not they they didn't dump a bunch of citra in there
0: (laughs) (laughs) no that's right it's it's very well balanced and very well integrated and this one is too and this one at this point is totally room temperature (laughs) so uh it
1: It is a lovely amber color again about a five on the hazel meter
0: if it had flaws they were gonna they're going to be evident right now Mm -hmm. and um it's very that
1: very subtle cherry
0: yeah i do too it is it's so subtle i couldn't it was like it's fruity but yeah it's cherry i noticed
1: it it right away but very very subtle so i'm actually not tell me about grains of paradise what do they taste like
0: uh they're very uh they're it's like cardamom it's a Mm -hmm. it's a spice that is uh use a a little bit goes a long way Mm so very intense spice and they're kind of su- – it's a sweet spice, hmm, okay. and it has – I don't know. It has a really particular flavor. Yeah. Uh, it's like cardamom that way. It's like – I don't know. It tastes yeah. like cardamom. Uh, it <laughs> tastes like Green's of Paradise. Uh, there was a
1: time, by the way, probably about 10, 15 years ago, when people were just going crazy with spices and beers.
0: I know. And I think
1: – It was a tragic era. The, the,
0: the Belgians, and we talked about this in one of our past uh, episodes, the Belgians are the best at using spice because they look for the, the flavors in a beer that have some quality – akin to a spice and they tuck it in there just a little bit just to kind of give it a little bit of yeah water. a
1: spice is supposed to enhance flavor yeah. not, in my mind not not create its overwhelming with its own flavor so yeah this one's
0: really nice all right uh, so two should.
1: excellent beers thank you very much once again roughhouse brewing from san marcos texas
0: so we have for the most part have uh had to abandon the sherpa uh, element of our podcast no. because, because well wait wait i'm hosting man I'm going to set you up Uh, because we're not going out very much and sampling very broadly because of COVID. However, it turns out you were recently out and about. So do you have a Sherpa?
1: Uh, Sure, I can can at least promote uh, the beers that I had. So uh, I was in Eugene through a mix of places being closed and it getting late. Uh, So places were closed the day, places were closed. Uh, I ended up at Sun River Brewing, which is uh, a brewery from Sun River, Oregon. Uh, That's the name. Which is outside of Bend, for those of you keeping track. So it, essentially, you can kind of consider them in the Bend universe.
0: They're and Eugene and Bend are at about the same latitude, but Bend is just east of Eugene. Like yeah, due east, on the other right?
1: side of the Cascades. Yeah, uh, but they have an out, outlet in Eugene, that, which I ended up at, um, and uh, had a lovely time, by the way. Um, uh, and I had two beers and. I'm, I'm pausing because I'm looking them up right now. Oops, I, that was not where I had them. I had them on the thing. So the f- the first was um, one that was called Bondi Beach Party. Uh, Bondi Beach Party, they describe as an um, uh, Australian Pale. which, uh, oops, that's not the one I have open. Ha, <laughs> ha, here we go. <laughs> an Australian Pale, which was absolutely delightful. It was a pale ale, so it wasn't too strong. Um, it... Uh, Features galaxy, topaz, mm-hmm. and Vic Secret hops.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Oh, Jeff knows these things. I didn't, I know galaxy, but not topaz and Vic Secret. Uh,
0: yeah, topaz is familiar to me, but I, I'm not placing it, uh, doing uh, owing to tree form and uh, fatigue. Uh, Vic Secret is a <laughs> South African hop.
1: Ah, so it was, but, and,
0: and Vic Secret, everyone should. Be aware of this. It is one of the darling hops that, uh, oh. in the juicy phenomenon. Many people are by
1: everyone that includes me. I should uh, be aware. Okay. Now yeah, I'm aware.
0: You should be aware. It, it's a harder hop to get a hold of, uh-huh. but it is beloved and, uh, it's a really nice hop.
1: Well, this one they describe as having peach, passion fruit, mango, and citrus. I really got the mango citrus, but in a, in a pale ale, right? So it wasn't like big, heavy, uh, beer. I thought it was fabulous. Um, I could have had a lot but i was curious so i then tried their hawaiian haze uh beer and this um this by the way was a little education i I thought it was amazing because they were able to get this uh uh crazy passion fruit flavor out of hops (laughs) but Uh, then then i I read uh, only later did i read that they actually put passion fruit tangerine and guava juice in the beer. Still, it was a really good beer. But I, but for a while, I thought, this is amazing. What could it be? They use Galaxy, Citra, Mandarina, Bavaria, but then Lotus Hops. Lotus was the one I didn't know. Hmm. And I thought, well, maybe this Lotus Hop is like something extraordinary. It turns out it's juice. But both beers are really good. So uh, of the two, I would probably um, uh, recommend the Bondi Beach Party uh, just because, I don't know doesn't have juice <laughs> not that i care actually there juice you go this is, juice is fine, but uh,
0: yeah i think that's cool uh i think um sun river is a brewery that does traditional styles really well has won a ton of awards mm-hmm. but uh hasn't been one of the great innovators so i'm happy to hear about this yeah
1: no i wasn't really i mean they really do feature their pretty same old lineup they've had for quite a long time right so i didn't know what to think it's been a long time since i've been there you and i actually Went to the Sun River Place in Bend when we did our Bend tour. Uh, I don't remember, but I think we liked their beer at the time. Yeah, (laughs) Uh, but I was interested in trying their new stuff, and this was—they were exceptionally well made. Excellent, Um, regardless of what you think, they were really exceptionally well made beers without flaws that I could find, and really tasty. So, good job. Very good. That's my Sherpa.
0: Well, let's go to the.
1: By the way, I don't know if these are how widely available. These are sort of special beers. Um, I think you got to find them in their pubs.
0: Right. Okay. Well, I'm going to the tweeter and I see we got another tweet, which I'm not going to deal with oh, right now. We, we may come back around We're to that. Mailbag. Uh, yeah. So in the mailbag, right. uh, I'm going to throw, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to throw a tweet on here, which is directly relevant to the conversation, which we just had. I'll throw it to you because I think, I think in some ways you've already answered it, but okay. uh, let's, let's do it. It comes from Michael Graham. And he uh, says, uh, speaking of Craig Malarkey, our, our guest, uh, his insistence that the three-tier violations don't happen in Washington is odd. In any competitive market where salaries are based on commission, violations are going to occur. It might not be an official company policy, but it definitely happens. He was a good sport for participating, though. Yeah.
1: Yes. I think we've more or less uh, covered that. But you're right. Um, that's a, a good point we didn't mention, that like all the sales staff are probably based uh, commission-based salaries, and that, of course, creates all kinds of incentives to juice your numbers. And so, yeah, there's all these little individual incentives, even if it's not company policy. Right, Individual incentive to try and push some things. And yes, Craig was an extraordinary... It's been years we've wanted to do this pod. We haven't had anyone willing to talk to us. So thank you very much. Yeah, Craig. and it's I'll really tell you,
0: I, when we were talking to him, I, I mentioned that I had toured the Meletus uh, uh, Distributing Warehouse and their whole operation. And Rob Miletus is the guy who who led that. He's the, the head of the company. Uh, and I asked him a jillion questions, really <laughs> direct, hard questions, soft questions, hard questions. And he was the most adept native politician I've ever heard. <laughs> like he,
1: Avoiding every single answer. He
0: never missed a beat. He just knew how to talk about this stuff in a way that would uh, not violate, you know, not not violate confidentiality. Would not get him in trouble with various partners of which he had a massive tangle, and so uh, yeah, I I am not at all surprised that Craig was not going to talk about how how clean or dirty Bellingham is. There is no upside in him for that, and uh, you know, it, I think company probably company policy is really different. Company culture is really different or differ, and if you're a and uh, whether you're a dirty or clean distributor who participates on the edge or, you know, smack dab under the law, there's just no, there's no upside to talking about any of this stuff. Yeah. So uh, the fact, I actually think that the fact that Craig spoke to us speaks a lot about that company's policies. I think probably a sketchy company would not have gotten anywhere near a podcast. So yeah, I, <laughs> I, I consider Craig's uh, answers and his openness uh, a real sign of. Uh, that company's culture, which I have only
1: positive kind of a revealed preference argument.
0: That's right. Oh, there you go. (laughs) More beeronomics there at the end. Okay. Uh, We have one more and
1: you want me to read this one.
0: Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't read the whole thing. I would read the first part and then yes, sir. The highlight highlight what he highlights.
1: Yes, boss. All right. Uh, This is uh, from Matt.
0: (laughs) Yeah, baby. I'm the boss.
1: Uh, Matt has no last name. Just Matt. Just Matt. Okay. Matt writes, Jeff, as a Chicagoan, I thought you did an excellent job showcasing our city with Shalonda White. She touched many of my favorite places to imbibe. I have to give my own top picks for a visitor to the city as follows. Okay, so we, this is one of our virtual city tours we did for Chicago. Uh, so I'll go listen to that and then add Mart's Brewing. Unique and creative atmosphere in an Old Factory, which was first planned manu- was the first planned manufacturing district, district of Chicago. Dovetail Brewing, uh, Metropolitan as well.
0: Both logger houses.
1: Yeah, and then bars, brew pubs, Delilah's, Bavarian Lodge, uh, Huffbrow House, Chicago. Ooh, that's a uh,
0: yeah. I know. Yeah. I wonder. Is that
1: <laughs> could it re- be?
0: Is it related? I don't know. There's no information. I'm kind of curious about that. <laughs>
1: uh, and then this, I have to, re- I have to put this in there. I have yeah. to, have I half agree with Patrick's taste on old man beer. There are lots of strong, flavorful beers that don't taste boozy that I enjoy in many styles. Sadly, my forties don't allow me to drink many of these in a week. Yes, you see.
0: Yeah. <laughs> All right. You're you're developing. Uh, uh, oh, man uh, so, uh, It's
1: with me, man. Yeah,
0: exactly. You've whatever you've created your meme, and you have you have fans and you have opponents, but you're you're like you've you've found your lane, man.
1: Uh, he, by the way, he signs off. Bear down, which. Boo. Boo. You don't, we don't want that stuff. Go style, Packers! Matt. Go away, Matt. <laughs> take, your, take your pathetic bears. How, <laughs> how many trophies, Matt?
0: Oh, oh, it's getting rough here. It's getting rough <laughs> here.
1: Might <laughs> be like that Jay Cutler experiment. <laughs> that, by the way, comes from my, my uh, Denver days.
0: <clears throat> yeah, it's true. Packer fans are – Packer and Bear fans. Compa- now that I'm in this whole Red Sox-Yankee thing, uh, and I, I understand what true fan hardcore is all about, Red Sox fans. Uh, I consider the Bears-Packers uh, rivalry the most gentle, loving relationship <laughs> in professional sports.
1: Yeah, there's also the weird one that's the, the, the Packers-Vikings. Right. Which is still sort of, you know, uh, upper Midwest, fairly sort of nice cultures, but that creates a weird schism.
0: So. Yeah, that's true. Interesting. Right, okay. Well, go back. Hey, you know what? I'm going to take us out. Nice. All right. A few words going out. Please (laughs) subscribe on Apple, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to rate us. Five stars, please. That helps our other (laughs) listeners find the show. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> this is my only role, so yeah. I had that. <laughs> nice. We're we on the we, we, Our game is, is going, man. Uh, we'd love to hear from you, so please send your questions and comments to Jeff at Birvanablog.com or on Twitter at at Birvanapod. I blog at Birvanapod and I tweet at at Birvana.
1: Oh, you want me to? I tweet sometimes at Biranomics. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, by the way, I tweeted out this uh, interesting article from the New York Times on uh, black brewers and black owned breweries. So oh, go check it
0: out. Yeah. Check that out. Uh, and on that note, we are going to have one of the most uh, prominent black brewers in the country, Garrett Oliver in a future podcast. What a gonna, get. Yeah. What a get. And he's going to talk about his new project uh, of uh, he's started a foundation that will help BIPOC people enter the extraordinarily white masculine uh, Beer industry. Yeah,
1: the Michael Jackson Foundation.
0: The Michael Jackson Foundation. So we are delighted to have him in the future. So that'll be cool. And you're right on, right on point as always.
1: Look for a fe- look for that pod radio show coming up in a future date. Indeed. All right. So we have a little bit of this Ona uh, farmhouse amber from Roughhouse Brewing in San Marcos, Texas.
0: Thank you so much, out. Out. Roughhouse. Thank uh, you. It was spectacular beer. All right. Cheers, Jeff. Cheers, Patrick. <laughs>